Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. I'm delighted to introduce this podcast. In it, we're going to be discussing the review paper, Practice Considerations for the Introduction and Use of Power Mobility for Children, by Rosalind Livingstone and Ginny Peleg. It'll be in the March issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Rosalind Livingstone, who's occupational therapist at the Sunny Hill Health Centre for Children, Vancouver, BC, Canada, and by Michelle Audit from the Children's Healthcare Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Please, can we start with you, Rosalind, to outline the paper? Okay, well, it all started when Jeannie and I were invited to be part of a panel leading a workshop for pediatric power mobility. It was at the International Conference on Posture and Wheeled Mobility in Glasgow in 2010. And the outcome of that workshop was that clinicians really wanted the development of a paper that would provide an updated summary of the literature, would rate the evidence, and would provide guidance for clinicians on which children were appropriate for power mobility. So we developed a draft paper that was based on a scoping review. And I've been interested in knowledge transfer for some time, and this involves looking at the knowledge needs of the important stakeholders like the families and clinicians. And they want to know answers to questions like, how young can children use power mobility? What's the impact on their development? Is it going to stop them learning to walk? Who can benefit? And so on. So through previous literature searches, I'd identified transferable messages that addressed these questions. And by transferable messages, I mean themes that are supported by a body of evidence rather than just a single research study. And I use these to develop educational materials for families and clinicians. So we revised and expanded on some of these messages based around what we found in the scoping review. And our paper started out with 15 messages that were in it, and we presented these at two workshops at the International Seating Symposium in Nashville and the European Seating Symposium in Dublin. And the participants in those workshops voted on their agreement with the messages and we revised and refined them based on their feedback. So there have been discussions in the literature about the need for different evidence standards that are more appropriate for rehabilitation. And these were suggesting that expert consensus, if it was done in a rigorous manner, should be capable of achieving level three evidence. And we realized that the research evidence for pediatric power mobility would be considered very low. The bulk of it's level five, there's some level four, one level two, one level three study. And so we thought if we went through a formal process of achieving consensus on the content and wording of those messages, that would raise the overall credibility of the evidence and might help us in working towards clinical practice guidelines in the future. So the transferable messages that emerged, they focus on some of the questions I talked about the age that children can begin to use power mobility, the impact on overall development, the facilitation of participation for children who have inefficient mobility, and even that children who might be able to walk or use a manual wheelchair when they're older, that they can also benefit from having efficient, autonomous mobility in that critical early few years of development. We also included the use of power mobility with children who have traditionally not been considered appropriate like children with severe intellectual disabilities or sensory impairments. And we emphasize the continuum of power mobility skill development from the early exploration of movement through to purposeful and competent use. And while obviously not every child who's unable to walk is going to learn to be a competent power wheelchair user, we know that the experience of independent mobility has profound effects on children's overall development. 
And we know this from pretty rigorous research in the field of psychology. And so it follows that every child who can't move independently should be considered for some form of independent mobility experience. And I just want to stress that when I talk about power mobility, I'm not just talking about power wheelchairs, that there are a variety of different options for power mobility experience. And these range from the inexpensive ride-on toy cars adapted with switches, using shared equipment in therapy sessions, using loaned or recycled power wheelchairs. And we're really just hoping to expand clinicians thinking about power mobility from only being a replacement of walking for children who are going to quickly learn to become independent drivers to an intervention that has a broad impact on development and should really be considered for all children who can't move efficiently and independently, especially in those early years of development. So the international consensus process looked at 10 transferable messages, and you used the Delphi survey uh, to solicit agreement on these messages. What did you note between the experts? What, What areas did they show the most agreement, and was this what you would have expected The areas that we got consensus on fairly quickly were that children can use power mobility from very young ages, so that under a year for those specialized power mobility equipment and under 14 months for using power wheelchairs. There was fairly quick consensus around that. We spent more time on sort of the specifics of wording of some of those statements. The other areas were the impact on overall development. Everyone was pretty much in agreement that the independent mobility experience provided by power mobility can impact on cognitive, perceptual, communicative, and social behaviors, and so on. We did spend some time going over things like whether it should be psychosocial development, whether it should be overall development, how much impact cognition has on all these skills. But agreement was very close. It was sort of refinement. And the other major one I would say is that everyone felt strongly that there was no negative impact on motor development from use of power mobility. So I think that was pretty much what I would have expected. I mean, we did recruit people who had published research. So obviously we knew some of their views. But there were a number of clinicians and people were working in different areas. So maybe coming from different backgrounds, but pretty much everyone had consensus around those major areas. And what were the areas where you found the most controversy between the international group of experts? Well, that was around the children who were not so traditionally considered appropriate for power mobility. There wasn't so much disagreement about use of power mobility for development of self-initiated behaviors, cause-effect, kind of the learning tools side of things, but around whether children with severe intellectual or sensory impairments can learn to use power mobility device competently. There was a lot of discussion about what we meant by severe disability and what we meant by competent use. I had to clarify some of those terms in the paper. And we achieved consensus when we defined competent as meaning that the child understood how to steer the chair, could drive in open, safe situations. But these are children with sensory or intellectual limitations and would need supervision in certain situations. If they were able to walk, they wouldn't be out walking in the street and crossing busy roads by themselves. So why would you expect that when they're using a power wheelchair? 
So the other major area of disagreement was around the impact of the environment. And this is a message that came out in a number of different studies is that the amount of time that children spend practicing and learning to use power wheelchair and the quality of learning support can have a huge impact on which children are successful in learning to use power mobility and which ones are not. And some of the qualitative research has shown that children with very similar cognitive or sensory disabilities might learn in one setting but not in another. So I would say there was probably half the panel was fairly in agreement about that and maybe another half were changing their opinions and really needed to clarify things like what was appropriate practice and environmental support and there was one or two people who really didn't feel that the environment was as important. I think we started out with the environment being possibly more important than individual differences and we came down to something that we could achieve consensus on which was that the development of power mobility skills may depend at least as much on the amount of time spent practicing and the quality of learning support as the child's motor cognitive and sensory abilities. Do you think some of the controversy might be because the clinicians don't feel comfortable with some of the available technology or don't have the available technology? I think that could very well be true. I think there's lots of factors that sort of limit the use of power mobility. I think ready availability of equipment and, you know, it's not an all or nothing. It's not we decide now and this child's going to be a long-term power mobility user. That that opportunity to give children experience to practice and explore and look at it as an intervention in its own right, I think, is quite new in certain practice situations and under certain models. You the child basically has to pass a driving test as if they'd had mobility experience when they've had none in order to qualify to get the chair so that they can practice and develop those skills. It's really looking at things the wrong way around. But I think in some practice situations, clinicians don't have the luxury of being able to provide that trial and practice experience. So that's why really trying to encourage the use of some of this inexpensive equipment, like the ride-on toy cars, is so non-intimidating. Families see it, they're ready to get on board and, and you know, oh, I could do that. They're not afraid of it. Sometimes when they look at uh, power wheelchairs, the whole thing is so intimidating, they don't know how to turn it on and off. And I think many clinicians probably feel like that too, if they don't have a lot of experience with the equipment and they don't have it readily available. And it's a whole lot less expensive as well. It's very interesting how young people can just take right on to that sort of thing. It's just like with iPads. You put a child at an iPad and they immediately know how to operate it. I think it's true with a lot of this uh, technology. They just immediately know what to do with it. And I think families, they've seen other children using similar kind of toys. So Mm -hmm. they're not threatened by it. It's not an unknown piece of equipment. It's like, oh, my child can do that too. I never realized. Right. What do you think from a therapist's standpoint or a clinician's standpoint, what do you think is missing? Why are we not using as much power mobility as we should be with young children with motor impairments? Well, I think there's a lot of factors. Like sometimes it's family's readiness or the clinician's readiness. We have this societal emphasis on walking as the most important goal. 
or these service provision constraints on therapists and funding difficulties as well. And I think sometimes if people, they're thinking, who's going to be appropriate for power wheelchair in the long term? They're thinking about efficient use of resources. You know, we don't have crystal balls. We don't know which children, when we're seeing them at a year old or 15 months, we don't know if they're going to be long-term power mobility users. And if we're sort of waiting to see, are they going to be appropriate for power mobility in the long term before we're even introducing the idea, then we're perpetuating the myth that it's a last resort option, that we should be trying everything else first. If instead we're emphasizing that independent mobility is essential for everyone and that children begin crawling between 8 and 12 months of age and any child who's not moving at those ages should be considered for some form of augmented mobility experiences and that can be all different kinds of equipment obviously but if you begin this in a low-tech and a family-friendly way using toys really widens the acceptability and some of these children are going to go on to crawl or walk and some of them might never move beyond the experience of cause-effect and that self-initiated behavior. And maybe only a few of those children are going to be long-term competent or expert mm-hmm. or wheelchair users. But it really doesn't matter because that independent mobility experience has been beneficial for all these children. It's not wasted time or intervention. We're not putting money into really expensive equipment that's not going to be used Everybody needs the mobility experience, and so if we look at it that way, perhaps, that sort of leads on to, oh, maybe this child should be a long-term power mobility user, whereas perhaps if that experience is not introduced early and they're not one of those typically appropriate for power mobility kids, people may not think about it. Is your hope then that the findings of this project will help therapists with some clinical decision-making and that we can then take some of the uh, findings of this study and go on and and develop some clinical practice guidelines? Yes. I I certainly am hoping that people will read our paper and it will challenge them to sort of widen their consideration of the application of power mobility for more groups of children. And I think it would be great if we could go on to develop something that's more structured, clinical practice guidelines. The dilemma is how do we do that? Well, we called this paper practice considerations because we didn't feel we were quite at the point of saying that they were guidelines. And given our small sample people that we had involved in this project, but typically you'd use a system like GRADE or some other evaluation system to evaluate the evidence and to generate strength of recommendations. However, given the low quality evidence in the individual studies, we would end up with ratings of low or very low quality. And I don't know if our paper, or at least the nine messages that achieved consensus, would rate level three. That's still only sort of a weak positive or probably kind of recommendation. On the other hand, if you've got a high probability of benefit, which is suggested from the psychology literature, which has stronger intervention research designs and is supported by this weaker evidence through using paramobility, and you've got low risk of harm. We haven't shown that we're doing anything negative to children's development by giving them this experience. And then if there's low cost, as there is with the ride-on-toy cars, 
a guideline development panel might rate strength of recommendation up for that intervention in particular. I don't know in terms of actual power wheelchairs because obviously they're very expensive and so we could never say that they were low cost. So I don't know, we might want to convene a larger, more widely representative Mm -hmm. panel to try to take messages to sort of the next stage of clinical practice guidelines. Well, I'd like to commend you and Ginny for the work that you've done because knowing that you're both clinicians first, this is an incredible project that you've done and it's very beneficial for all of us that are clinicians because this is a, a real important thing. And I think that we can take this and develop at least some practice guidelines for our individual practices and hopefully go from here to come up with something more. And this is a huge project that you really have done an excellent job on. I want to thank you very much. So we've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks to Rosalind Livingston and Michelle Audet for discussing a very important area in practical terms which can affect the lives of so many children and their families. And just to remind our listeners that the article is Practice Considerations for the Introduction and Use of Power Mobility for Children by Livingston and Peleg, and it's in the March 2014 issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.